0: episode 15 of by our own hands if the britons have a civil war they will bring it to our shores kiva whispered rory nodded in agreement hugh did not know whether or not he should fear charles but he knew to fear parliament in their kind he knew that if they came to ireland there would certainly be trouble we need to act before they do We need to send the English home, Rory said. Hugh and Kiva exchanged troubled looks. They did not understand Rory. He promised to return to them. He assured them that once he did return, he would make certain that they did understand him. Hugh trusted Rory even if he did not see the wisdom in his words. It took several months for Rory to return. In that time, the situation had become more urgent. Wentworth had returned to England. Parliament had refused to do much for Charles. Many condemned Wentworth's actions in Ireland. Some went as far as to accuse him of high treason. It was true that he was unscrupulous and greedy, but he had not committed treason. Parliament still condemned him to death. Charles, unable to defy Parliament, signed the death warrant of his friend and brother. When Wentworth was told, he exclaimed, Put not your trust in princes. Hugh knew that Wentworth had learned that phrase while in Ireland. Parliament had ceased to love their king. It was just a matter of time before they ceased to obey their king. Once this happened, Kiva's words would prove true and the Britons would bring their troubles to Ireland. On the day that Rory returned, Hugh knew that Rory had made a plan, a plan for Hugh and all of Ireland. Kiva was with child. It was she who heard the horses' hoofs. Hugh listened carefully and heard them too. Soon Rory was seated at Hugh's table. He brought with him Hugh McMahon. Connor Maguire and Phelim O'Neill. They were all a princely stock. Hugh McMahon was descended from the kings of Argalla, an Ulster kingdom that had been largely given over to Protestant planters by Elizabeth and James. Connor Maguire hailed from the kings of Fermanagh in the region of Ulster. His family had been robbed of much of their land during James' plantation of Ulster. Phelim O'Neill hailed from the most powerful of Ulster families, the O'Neills of Tyrone, Tyrone. His family had also suffered great confiscations during James' plantation. They had come to talk of peace and rebellion, a peaceful rebellion. We cannot easily meet in any of our lands without causing suspicion. No one will look for us in Anglosborough, Rory said. Hugh smiled. His tiny village was tucked away in the mountains of Limerick and named for the English. It was the last place anyone would suspect a rebellion to be planned. Hugh knew that Rory must be planning a rebellion or he wouldn't have gathered these men. They were all of royal Gaelic blood and they had all been dispossessed of their ancestral lands. Many of their kin had become like exiles in their own land. Rory soon confirmed Hugh's suspicions. We must act before the English and Scots do. We have planned a coup d'etat, Follum O'Neill said. We are to rebel against England, Hugh asked. We plan to force England to return to England, Rory said. And England is, Hugh said, looking about and motioning towards his home. The men chuckled. England is Dublin and Derry. England is where Ireland is ruled by England and nothing more, Connor Maguire said. We do not have a great army. How will we do this? Hugh asked. We will use the element of surprise, Follum O'Neill said. And there is one more detail that is imperative for our plan to work, Rory said. What is that? Hugh asked. The cutie must be bloodless, he answered. Hugh was silent. He had just been told that they must rebel against mighty England, and they must do so without shedding any blood. Rory smiled reassuringly at Hugh. ''You don't believe that this can be accomplished?'' he asked. Kiva had listened and remained silent, but now she found her voice. ''I do. I believe it can be done and that it must be done,'' she said. ''But they must leave this land unharmed,'' Rory added. Kiva nodded. Hugh gave her a questioning look. ''I will take Derry with O'Neill. McGuire and McMahon will take Dublin Castle.'' We will take them by surprise. They will be sent home to England. The English will see clearly with their own eyes that their countrymen have been treated honorably, he continued. I will join you, Hugh said. Yes, and I will return you safely to my daughter, Rory said, glancing at Kiva. Rory's smile faded, and he looked about at his companions. We must do this soon. We have very little time, Rory said. The other men nodded except for Hugh. Rory saw this. Hugh, we must send them to England before the English or Scots come to our shores, he added. Hugh knew that Rory hoped to rescue the king of England. If the king asked for an Irish army to come to England and assist him, his own people would rebel. They believed that their Irish neighbors were violent and barbarous. If the English authorities in Ireland were sent home unharmed, the opinions held by so many of the English might change. Charles might be able to ask for an Irish army. As if reading his mind, Rory addressed his concerns. We will deliver ourselves with our own hands without shedding blood. We will have what none of us have ever known or dared to dream of, a country ruled by our own. Then we will deliver the King of England. Hugh began to feel doubtful about Rory's plans. You believe we must rescue the King of England from his own parliament? They have not yet declared war on their king. If we wait for the English and Scots to threaten us, Hugh began. We cannot wait. There will be a war. This is our only choice, Rory shouted. The room fell silent. The men eyed Kiva. She placed a hand on her swollen belly. Her condition was obvious. I understand. It is just a matter of time before England is at war. The king cannot defeat Parliament without assistance. He cannot even subdue the Scots. He will be defeated, and then his destroyers will land on our shores." They will shed our blood because we are Gales and because we are Roman Catholics. They will not allow us to remain apart from the conflict because they do not trust us to do so. They do not trust us because we do not believe as they do, she said. We must act before they do. It is our only hope of keeping them from our shores. We must rid ourselves of England and prevent their king from losing his throne. If we fail to do either, we will be forsaken, Rory said. How can you be so certain that they will come to our shores? Hugh asked. Listen to my daughter. Since England has arrived in our land, she has brought her troubles to our land. We cannot be neutral because England will not allow it, Rory said. Now all of Britain is troubled. Their Protestants are divided. Those who stand behind the King belong to the Church of England, while most of those that stand behind Parliament are dissatisfied with the Church of England. The former distrust us and wishes to curtail many of our freedoms, The latter wishes to destroy us so that those who worship as we do are no more than a distant memory. Rory is correct. We cannot remain neutral, Follum O'Neill said. We must take a stand, and it must be with England's king. If he is destroyed, we will be destroyed, Rory said. They will assume that we stand with the king regardless of our stand. We can wait for England to come to our shores and punish us, or we can go to them and meet them on their own soil, Kiva said. Hugh nodded. When do we leave, Hugh asked. We leave in three days. Prepare yourself, Rory said. The men rose from their seats and retired for the evening. Hugh knew that Rory's words were true, but he still struggled to find another way. He did not want to go to war he did not want to leave kiva he was overcome with uncertainties he struggled to find a certain path that night he dreamt of a flood that threatened to wash away his home he could do nothing to fight the flood waters all he could do was watch as the flood waters threatened to overtake him as he watched in dismay he heard a voice it was the voice of a woman He did not turn around. Use deceit if need be, or we will all be overcome. If you fail, the tyrants will come and we will all be forsaken. Be wise and loyal. The Creator of the waters will save you if you heed my warning. Hugh turned around and saw an old woman wearing a black shawl. She quickly disappeared. He turned back to the flood waters. And they suddenly ceased to encroach on him, and then the waters began to recede. He woke from his dream. He knew that he must be wise and loyal, but he could not shake the doubts that plagued him. He doubted Rory's plan. He doubted that it could succeed, and even if it were successful, he could not bring himself to support any proposed plan to go to England and assist their king. He wanted to remain in his land. He was willing to defend himself, Kiva, and her unborn child. He would fight to the death to defend them, but he did not want to start a war. He prepared to leave. His doubts grew over the next few days. He could not believe that war and invasion were inevitable. He could not believe that the King of England could not keep his throne without Irish assistance. They left on a rainy day and traveled to Leash. Men joined them as they traveled. Hugh learned that these men did not know as much as he did. They had simply pledged their swords to one of the great chiefs. On reaching Leash, McGuire and McMahon traveled on towards Dublin. Hugh, Rory, and O'Neill camped at Leash. One of the men that had joined them was Owen O'Connolly. Hugh noticed him immediately. He had joined McGuire's men and had then joined Rory's. Hugh knew that each man that joined had pledged himself to one of the chiefs. It was an ancient tradition. A warrior pledged his fealty, sword, and life to his chief. He did not make a pledge to two chiefs. Hugh found Owen sitting alone. He sat next to him. They remained silent for some time before Owen broke the silence. Why do you follow Rory, he asked. He is my chief, Hugh said. Hugh turned to Owen and stared at him. You have pledged your sword to two. No, you have pledged your sword to none, Hugh added, challenging Owen to refute him. Owen looked away. He did not reply for several moments. There will soon be war. England is ready to go to war with their king. The English will come to our shores once they have finished slaughtering each other, he said. I know, Hughes said. They have not yet come. Your chief wants to make war on the English before they come to our shores, he said. I know, Hughes said. There is hope. England could defeat its king and then defeat itself. We may never be drawn into their war, he said. There is hope, Hugh agreed. But there is no hope if we invite them by starting a war, Owen said. Owen's words echoed the doubts in Hugh's heart. He could not abandon his hope of peace. He turned to Owen and defied his king. We are to take Derry in one week. At the same time... "'McMahon and McGuire are to storm Dublin Castle. "'They hope to take both without shedding any blood,' he said. "'And then what do you plan to do?' Owen asked. "'Send England back to England,' Hugh said. "'Do you know what I must do?' Owen asked. "'Yes, I do,' Hugh answered. "'And you will not try to stop me?' Owen asked. "'No, I will not,' Hugh said. Owen left that night as the camp slept. The next day, they continued their journey towards Derry. When they reached Derry, a messenger arrived. He informed them that McGuire and McMahon had been arrested by Dublin authorities. Hugh was silent when they received the news. Rory turned to Follum. Hugh could see that Rory was devastated. We will have to abandon our plans, Rory said. Falun nodded in agreement, even though he did not agree. As he nodded his agreement, he was already planning to deceive his countrymen. Within days, he issued the proclamation of Dungannon, which gave the English king sweeping powers. He claimed that it was the king's own royal proclamation, but it was a forgery. He used this forgery to justify taking several forts in Ulster. He hoped to strengthen the King of England's control in Ireland as it quickly eroded in England. The Gaels of Ireland and the Old English, believing themselves to be acting in accordance with the King's wishes, gave their full support to Follum O'Neill. Soon the rebellion had spread to much of Ireland. The battle for the King of England was used as an excuse to settle old grievances. The English in Dublin sent their troops into the countryside to pillage and slaughter. The dispossessed Roman Catholics of Ulster rose up against the Protestants they had been planted on their lands. Munster Catholics rose up in defiance, too, and challenged the English they had been given their lands. O'Neill soon found himself unable to control the chaos his actions had unleashed. Rory and Hugh returned to Anglosborough. They were both concerned that the violence would continue to spread and Kiva would be harmed. As they traveled, they did not speak. Hugh was weighed down with shame and sorrow. Their journey was arduous and took several days. When they finally reached Anglesborough. Rory turned to Hugh and spoke. I know that it was you, he said. Hugh could not speak. Tears sprang to his eyes. Tell me why you betrayed me. Hope, Hugh said. My plan of deceit was our only hope, Rory said hugh did not reply he had hoped against all reason that he could prevent a war now his country was at war and most believed that the king of england had given his blessing to their uprising england does not love their king without assistance he will be destroyed we were his only hope no other will come to his assistance "'All of Europe is embroiled in our own conflicts and troubles. "'He will be defeated, and those that defeat him "'will come to our shores with vengeance in their hearts,' he said. "'Hugh could not look Rory in the eye. "'Promise me that you will do all that you can to protect my daughter,' he added. "'I will,' Hugh said. "'Rory turned to leave. "'Before he rode away, he called to Hugh.' Before our journey, I received word from Dublin. A young man was found hanging in his room. He took his own life. His name was Owen O'Connolly, he said before riding away. England reacted in horror. They condemned their Irish neighbors. Charles could not ask for an Irish army. Parliament knew that he was cornered. They went to war with their king their leader was oliver cromwell the queen and her youngest children fled to the netherlands charles and his diminished armies fought the armies of parliament and the rebels of scotland the fighting ensued for years until charles was captured he was put on trial and beheaded by parliament his eldest son charles fought on But he too was forced to flee, as his mother and siblings had already done. Parliament then turned its attention to Ireland. Oliver Cromwell arrived and laid siege to the city of Drogheda. His forces broke through the city's defenses. The mayor was beaten to death with his own wooden leg. The young, old, and defenseless inhabitants of the town ran to the sanctuary of St. Peter's Church. It was set ablaze. Anyone escaping the flames was shot. He marched on with his new model army across Ireland, slaughtering and terrorizing the population. His soldiers wore round helmets and were soon referred to as roundheads. Ireland's Roman Catholics suffered terrible persecutions under the Roundheads. Priests were favorite targets for torture and murder. Roman Catholicism was outlawed. Priests were hidden by brave people willing to risk their lives. The Irish people were told to go to hell or go to Connaught, which was in order to leave their land and transport themselves to the westernmost region of Ireland, many were transplanted many others became landless peasants on the very lands they had once owned some were sent away into slavery more than a third of ireland's people perished oliver cromwell caught his death in ireland when he contracted malaria he refused treatment because the best available treatment for malaria was created by a jesuit priest He died six years after the conquest of Ireland had been completed. A terrible storm struck England on the night of his death. Many believed that it was the devil coming to take his soul. His son-in-law could not hold on to power, and the son of the slain king was asked to return to England. He became King Charles II. When the Roundheads had arrived in Anglosborough, Hugh had kept his promise to Rory. He had taken Kiva, his son Rory, and himself to a mountain hideaway similar to Anglosborough. This village sanctuary was called Glan Asheen, Glen Asheen. It was located in County Limerick. It was hidden away and would remain hidden for many years. Rory had tried to establish order in Ireland with the Irish Confederacy. His leadership brought about change. At one point, most of Ireland was under the control of the Confederacy. It did not last due to infighting. Rory vanished from history at this point. Some claim that he was at the last Irish battle fought against the Roundheads in Galway and that he had fled to the island of Inishbotham. St. Colman's Church on the island has an inscription that reads, God and Our Lady be our help and Rory O'More, He was the hope of Ireland. His fire did not die when he died. Hugh died many years later. As he took his last breaths, he could see Rory. His eyes were closed, but he could see him more clearly than he had ever before. But when a voice spoke to him, it was not Rory's, it was the voice of an old woman he heard. You have failed. You who were trusted and loved by a great king. You betrayed him. You were not wise and you were not loyal. We could have been free. Instead, we were slaughtered and enslaved by tyrants. Now we are all forsaken. I have finished my story, but Dr. Foxlow is still very quiet. I can see that he is deep in thought. I wonder how much my version of the story of Oliver Cromwell differs from his own. I can imagine that our versions differ considerably. For me and mine, Oliver Cromwell was the devil's son. He is condemned by many English people, too, but I'm certain that their condemnations are not as great as mine and that of my people. He didn't cause the death of a third of England's population. Some of the details of your description of Oliver Cromwell are new to me, he says. I sigh. I expect to be told that Oliver Cromwell was bad but somewhat inevitable, or that he was simply carried away by his own Puritan self righteousness. You did not mention the dogs and smiths, ifa he adds. I am surprised. He does not want to politely question my version of events. He wants to add to them. Oliver Cromwell outlawed Irish dogs. He feared them, especially the large wolfhounds so favored by the Gaelic aristocracy and royalty some irish dogs were smuggled into england and scotland less than ten years ago the irish wolfhounds were reintroduced to ireland by a scotsman george graham he says he pauses before continuing then there is the matter of the smiths were the smiths outlawed too i ask the smiths were not officially outlawed as the dogs had been But for all intents and purposes, many were outlawed. Cromwell pardoned many of those that fought for king instead of parliament. A pardoned man was stripped of his arms and the ability to make arms. If he was a chief or a nobleman, he was not permitted to keep a smith, he adds. He leans forward and continues speaking. His voice has taken on an intensity. The same chiefs and nobles that had their own smiths among their servants also employed servants whose only duties were to care for their dogs. These servants were a type of nobility in their own right, he says. I nod again. Aoife, my father believed that these noble smiths and caretakers of the dogs of Ireland's hierarchy were turned out by their masters, when those same masters were not allowed to keep smiths or native Irish dogs. These nobles took to the roads because their social roles had been destroyed. They became nomadic. To this day, they are still nomadic and they are still expert in working with metals and caring for as well as breeding Irish dogs, he says. I inhale deeply. The travelers, I say. He nods. I think of the nomadic travelers I've seen and spoken to. They are often called Irish gypsies. I could believe his father's theory. Their names are of Gaelic and Norman origins, which indicates that they either hail from both types of families or that their ancestors served both types of families. They have a dignity that they uphold in the face of prejudice, sometimes very harsh prejudice. They are a noble people. Their language has some antiquities, too. It contains more Old Irish than the Irish spoken by most Irish speakers, he says. Why is that significant, I ask? Noble and royal courts always spoke more eloquently and archaically, It was the same in all of Europe. The courts of Europe maintained certain traditions, and this process often resulted in a language that was more in line with that which was spoken in days of old than that which is spoken today, he says. I am impressed. Once again, I am struck by the fact that Nathaniel Foxlow is not an ordinary Englishman. I am also saddened because his words caused me to recall one of my most painful memories. The expression on my face has darkened, I am sure. I can see that this has made him uncomfortable. Have I said something that offends you, he begins. No, no, I just recalled a terrible event that occurred some months after the outhouse fire, I say. He leans back in his chair I must tell him of my tragedy. Mr. Adair made several trips with Dugald Rankin and Archibald Campbell over the next several weeks. When they returned from one of their trips in early November, Old Man Seamus dared to speak privately with Mr. Adair. Mrs. O'Donnell had warned him not to, but he had brushed off her concerns. When he spoke with Mr. Adair, I could hear the muffled shouts through the kitchen door. I knew why Old Man Seamus had tried to speak with Mr. Adair, but I still wanted Mrs. O'Donnell to confirm my suspicions. Is Old Man Seamus speaking about the tenants? I asked. Mrs. O'Donnell nodded. Yes, Aoife Love, she said. Is he asking Mr. Adair when they will get new leases? I asked. "'Yes, everyone's notice to quit is about to expire. "'Our neighbors are quite anxious,' she said. "'If the notices expire, will they have to leave?' I asked. Mrs. O'Donnell sighed and regretfully nodded. "'Yes, but he won't let that happen,' she said. "'How can you be so sure?' I asked. "'Mr. Dare is one of the quality people. "'Most of us dread becoming bad. "'For the most part,' The quality people dread others considering them bad more than they dread becoming bad. Do you understand? she asked. He is more concerned with his reputation than his immortal soul, I said. Mrs. O'Donnell gave me a long look and then slowly nodded. She didn't have to tell me to refrain from repeating our conversation. Mr. Adair won't do such a terrible thing, because he doesn't want others to think that he is terrible, I add. That is what I believe, but the fact that it is November does make me anxious too, she said. Old Man Seamus entered the kitchen. He walked past both of us and didn't even acknowledge us. I could see that he was furious. Mrs. O'Donnell and I both fell silent and watched him. She had the good tact to refrain from reminding him that she had warned him. He walked out of the kitchen and I heard a distinctive sound when the door to the kitchen opened. I heard a loud bark. Mrs. O'Donnell and I exchanged looks. We both walked out of the kitchen and into the hall.